If you would take your Bibles, turn to uh, Mark chapter 1. We're in a series of the Gospel of Mark. Really just want to learn. I'm going to spend a few months just walking with Jesus and then probably do something else for about a month or so and then come back. Uh, just We really just want to focus on Jesus a little bit because he's what we're about and he's about us and giving his life for us. And I want us to look today at Jesus. He calls his first disciples. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to be beginning at verse 16. It says this, now as... As Jesus was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who was also Peter, uh, known as Peter later, and Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother. Notice this, they're casting nets into the side. They're fishing since they were fishermen. Makes sense, huh? Well, Jesus gives these two powerful words. Follow me. And then Jesus says, not only follow me, but I will make you fish for people. And one of Mark's favorite words there is immediately, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Now they were in their boat mending nets. So you got one that's fishing, you got one that's mending. This is, they were in their boat mending nets. And immediately, Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him as well. So Jesus calls these first disciples. He does it just like he does for us today. He calls Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Now because of the rapidity of which Mark's gospel moves along, it might be easy for us to think that, oh wow, these guys, man, Jesus must, you know, he's God. He must be really powerful. I mean, he just walks up to these guys, says, follow me, and they follow him. But if we understand the chronology of the other gospels, you'll see in John chapter 1 that this was not the first chance meeting that Jesus met these guys. It's very probable that he probably had a couple of encounters with them already. So this isn't like, oh, there's Jesus. Here's these guys, call him. No, they'd had some, they'd had some interplay already, some relational connections. And I think there's an important point here to understand that sometimes we get impatient with people or we can uh, become impatient with ourselves. But for, for a lot of people, uh, some people decide to follow Jesus after their first encounter. One exposure, maybe it's come to church or come to a service or whatever, and that's good. They, they, they hear it, they respond, and they believe. But especially in our culture today, they're finding research shows that more people need more than one encounter. Uh, this happened with me, and, it, and believe me, it's not because I'm so smart or anything, it's just because of where I was in my life. But it took me about a year there was about a year process where I was going to church. My dad made me go to church uh, when I was in high school because uh, Christ had done so much for him and had saved him in his third marriage. And so he said, you're going to go no matter what. And so I ended up having to go. But during this process, I would hear the gospel. And I've told you the story a number of times where I'd sit in this church and I went with my best friend, Russ, and he would always want to respond to the altar call. And I'd say, no, not yet. I'm not ready. And so, but after about a year, after God just doing some things in my life and my heart, and, and I begin to kind of investigate the claims of Christ and see the reality of it in other people's lives, I responded. And it's really important that we give people that time. We encourage them. Listen, sniff around, investigate, think about it. Don't just j jump in lock, stock, and barrel if you're not ready. 
Because research often, I read an article some time ago where they said that a lot of times that those people who take their time and really investigate, those are the ones that end up sticking around, staying for the long haul. Because now they've tested it, they've tried it, they've learned about it, they've read on it, and they've investigated who Jesus is, and they've watched his followers, as imperfect as we are, but they begin to go, aha, I will, I will follow this man. So don't ever discourage people from asking questions. Remember Josh McDowell, who some of you may not have heard of, but he is a, a prominent youth speaker and, and family speaker now, an apologist, means he defends the faith. When he was in college, he used to say, I used to love to eat Christians for lunch. Because he'd get into these intellectual debates with them and he'd shoot down everything they said. And so finally he said, you know what, I am going to really study this. He spent over 400 hours studying the claims of Christ. And you can actually find the research that he did. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And Evidence That Demands a Verdict Part 2, where he really lays it out. It's just really a polemic. It's a, it's a clear, and well, not concise, but a clear statement on who Jesus is and what he does. And, uh, and after 400 hours of intensive research and study, guess what? He became a Christ follower and then became one of a, a Christianity's greatest apologists. So I encourage people to do that. But I want you to see here, Jesus, following Jesus is this wonderful adventure. And it started in this story today where we're beginning to see, kind of like Jesus' first day at the office. You know, he's calling people and, and he gets his first followers. And I want you to see there is a call. And the call is simply this, follow me. See, these first followers, they're not overly religious. They weren't well-connected. They weren't highly educated. They were just normal, ordinary guys. But that's what's so powerful is because we see how Jesus could turn a world right side up with upside down people like them, like you, like me. You know what I love about the Bible too? And, and, and this is throughout the whole scriptures, but especially as we read about these guys. The Bible doesn't put a fresh coat of varnish on them. It doesn't put a new layer of veneer on them. It basically says, this is who I called in all their imperfections and all their inadequacies. And, and I often get this thought, if Jesus could use these guys, there's hope for me. And guess what? There's hope for you. See, turn to your neighbor and say, there's hope for you if he called these guys. Yeah, just tell them, there's hope for you. So there's hope for me. Because see, we have, a, we have a tendency to think that these guys had it all together. And, if you, and as we go through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to find out very quickly they don't. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a large lake. It was about 13 miles long, 7 miles across, 150 feet deep. What, what, one of the interesting characteristics of it is the lowest sea below sea level. It's actually 700 feet below sea level. And there was probably about 30 towns around it. First century um, historian of Jewish history, Josephus, he said that oftentimes it would not have been unlikely for any given day for there to have been probably close to 330 boats fishing and at work around the Sea of Galilee. So we're talking mass boats. We're talking a lot of fishermen. So Jesus didn't just kind of walk up there and go, hmm, hmm, oh yeah, I'll take you and you or you. He knew he was going, who he was going after. It was a selection process. And Jesus took the initiative to call these guys. They weren't volunteers. 
And you have to understand what's another amazing thing about this in this day. The rabbis were highly revered people. They walked around in robes. They were smart, uh, highly religious, and they would pick the people that, uh, excuse me, the pupils would go and ask the rabbi to p- uh, follow them. Could I follow you, Rabbi Hillel? Could I be a part of your little entourage and learn from you? But here Jesus is the rabbi that he goes around and he starts picking individuals. Now, I know a lot of you are football fans in here and you've probably been reading a lot. And I got mag, I mean, I got my Sports Illustrated comes and it's got a whole cover and a whole, most of it's taken up with the NFL draft that's coming this week. And I know some of you Raider fans are really excited about that because you're hoping that this will be the miracle that will maybe... (laughs) Move, move your team forward. Can I just be honest? It's not going to help. Okay? I, uh, I know, yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's, that, can I just tell you, that's the biggest concern I've had about our church in the last five years, is that it seems that we've had more Raider fans come in than we have 49er fans. And there's just something sinful about the Raiders. And, uh, but I, I, just, I just want you to know this draft ain't going to help you much. But, but this whole draft idea, you don't volunteer to be part of a pro football team. You get drafted. They check you out. They call you and they say, we're going to pick you. And it's the same thing with Jesus. See, there's a big difference between volunteer and being called. A volunteer takes the initiative to volunteer, excuse me, a volunteer takes the initiative and says, I want to volunteer for this. But in a calling, it's the caller who takes the initiative and it's the called one. They must respond and say, yes, I will. Now, there's a lot of things that you can volunteer for, isn't there? And I'm so glad, and I just, let me reiterate this, how thankful I am for a church that understands the importance of volunteerism. Because you know this. If you don't know this, I'll just tell you, we couldn't do anything of what we do around here without you. And that means from, from the way we do the Easter, from the way we do our services, and I just, again, you are to be commended. And if you are not a volunteer, if you're not serving in some place, shame on you. Because you really need to step up and get into the game, get off the sidelines and be a part of what Jesus is doing here. But I want to say thank you to all of you that do. But when Jesus put his team together, he didn't go to the crowd and he didn't say, okay, here we go. All right, whoever wants to follow me, raise your hands or step forward. No, his initial call was to individuals. He says, Simon, I'm calling you. And by the way, you're going to become Peter, Andrew. I'm calling you. James, John. It's really an important point for us, loved ones, because we, don't, we do not volunteer to enter God's kingdom. King Jesus comes, and he makes claims on our life. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says this, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. There is this mission of Jesus that is continually seeking out those who are lost. He takes the initiative We are simply the responders. Notice what Ephesians 2 says. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that any man, anyone can boast. Hear me. We don't initiate it, loved ones. God does. People say, I found Jesus. He was never lost. (laughs) You were. 
Romans, the scripture is clear. It says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are dead in our sins. He initiated. He sovereignly is at work. And this grace, it comes after us. And see, our part is simply faith and trusting in the response. And when we respond to this grace and this love of Christ, it rewires us. It's more than we deserve. It's greater than we can imagine. But hear me, it's all that we need to move forward and to become new people in life. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Scripture's clear. It says that we are spiritually dead. I don't know about you, but dead people don't respond. They're dead. They're flatlined. And there is this life of Jesus that comes by the quickening of his spirit that begins to draw us and begin to work in us and bring us to him. And we simply are responders to what he initiates in our lives. And that's a whole, whole theological uh, conundrum that you know, hasn't been settled for the ages, you know, about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But listen, I believe they're dovetailed and they work together. Because it's not that people don't have any choice whether to follow or not. We see it throughout the scriptures, everywhere Jesus went. You know what, he didn't have a bunch of altar calls. He didn't ask people to raise their hand. He would simply do what he does here. He would walk into a party where they were doing things and then he would leave. And guess what happens? People either followed or they didn't, they got it. Or sometimes they would start following him like you see in John chapter six. They start following and what do they do? As soon as he cut off the wonder bread and the cold cuts, they would quit following because he didn't provide what they wanted anymore. And see, that's how it works today. There's a lot of people who respond. Oh, Jesus, oh, you did this for me, you did this for me. You know, and I'm in, these, I'm in this bad place. And as soon as they get out of the bad place, what do they do? They move away from Jesus. And then sometimes you'll see people, oh, it's a bad time again, I gotta go back. But you see, I'm not really sure that that's following. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that's not following Jesus. That's simply following an Aladdin's lamp that's gonna get you out of spiritual deep doo-doo. <laughs> and see, that's not how Jesus operates. Jesus makes this clarion call that says, follow me. The, vo- the church, loved ones, is not a volunteer community. It's made up of volunteers, but it's really not the focus to be a volunteer community. You, me, us, we are a called community. And some of us have got to make sure that we're hearing the voice of Jesus. I've always said that one of the greatest things that I can do, or one of the most important jobs that I have, is to help our church to be able to understand how to hear, sense, live with the expectancy of hearing Christ's voice, this voice of the Spirit, day in and day out, week in and week out in our lives. Because there are all voices that we hear. I was recently reading an article by Erwin McManus, a great pastor down in Southern California. He noted that until the fall, the whole universe was reflected of God's voice. Everything was formed, it was created, it was shaped by the voice of Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that literally, the, the, the world, this earth, the cosmos is, is framed by the words of Christ. Creation is directed by his words. When Adam and Eve were created, he gave them their marching orders. 
But it's interesting that when they sinned, when they disobeyed, when they took of the forbidden tree in Genesis chapter three, after God comes and he walks in the garden with them, he doesn't ask him this question, why did you do this? He doesn't ask him this question, what happened? He simply asks him this, who told you you were naked? See, this is the issue. This is the question that God's, whose voice were you hearing besides mine? Whose voice were you listening to besides mine? And see, so many of us, we hear voices, don't we? We hear voices from our, from our past that help shape our lives up to this point. Where, the, the, you know, growing up, maybe some of us had some parents that just, I mean, they didn't believe in us. I, I can't remember ever hearing an affirming word from my father. I can't remember him ever saying, I love you. Now, has that tweaked me? I don't think so. But, 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 but I've never, but I, but I realized that in a lot of my adult life, from the time I was under, able to understand affirmation, I always pursued doing good. Why? Well, because that's how I would get affirmed. Because if I didn't get it at home, I had to get it somewhere. And so, you, so what does that do? Well, that can become, there, there's a positive to that because you're always working hard to do your best. The negative part is you become a people pleaser and you always want to make everybody happy because you want to tell them how good you are, which is a really bad place to go. And some of you had parents that, that abused you with their words and you still have that ringing in your head. The first young man that I discipled in Lodi, when as a youth pastor, his name is Sean Anderson. And uh, he, 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 they believed he had cerebral palsy. Not, not a really bad case of it. He was high functioning, but when he talked and when he walked and when you just sat and watched him uh, for a couple of minutes, you could tell that there was something uh, that he had a, a, a handicap. And it was, and, and, this, and this young man, he was, one of the, like I said, the first student that I ever really discipled. And he would sometimes come to my office after school and he would just be bawling and crying and saying, Terry, I just, I just, I just so wish I didn't have this disability, this infirmity. How come I got to deal with it? Because kids make fun of me and they don't include me. And this went on for, he, he was in my youth group for uh, probably three years and I don't know, probably first, late in the first year, second year, I just finally said to him, I said, Sean, who are you going to listen to? I said, Sean, what, is, what does Jesus say about you? And he goes, I know Jesus loves me and, and all of this. And I go, okay, that's who you've got to listen to. And we had that conversation many times. Because you know, if you've grown up that way, that can be hard to break through and bust out. And I'd be willing to say, there's a number of adults in this room, you're still trying to break out of some of those thought patterns of the past. But this is what's powerful. When you really believe what God says about you, it can move you forward in your life. The scripture says life and death are in the power of the tongue. It gives life. And when you begin to hear the voice of Christ, it can change you. It was about a year and a half ago, Sean found me and he came and, 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 uh, and, and stopped by the church here. And he comes by and wanted to just kind of say, hey, PT, this is what I'm doing now. He comes by. He, uh, he got his master's degree. He was a really smart kid. And he says, hey, this is what I'm doing now. So he drops by and he gives me these two books. Author, and get this, author and speaker. 
They found out he was misdiagnosed. It wasn't really cerebral palsy, but it was its cousin, a thing called dystonia. And so all of these years, they're treating him for one thing when the other thing is the issue. Now, he still has some neurological issues, but see, he's able to, he was able to come and get beyond where people tried to place him in his past. And so now he's published a couple of books and he's an author and he's a speaker and he goes around talking about disabilities and how to help people. Now, let me just tell you, that's the kind of thing Jesus can do in our lives to overcome the infirmities, the voices of the past. Some of you have voices of the present. You hear now from people who want to devalue you. There's a world system out there that we become so timid by it because it argues uh, and sounds so intellectual and so believable with its great philosophies. God is dead. He's not real. He's not here. How could you follow this God who allows all of these catastrophes and sufferings and things over here? How can you? And we begin to think like that. We hear those voices. Those are big voices. Those are big topics that get in our dish. And then we deal with the past ones that say you're not going to amount to anything. How could you? Why could you think you could move forward? And then you deal with the enemy who sits there in Revelation chapter 12 says he throws accusations against you and says you're just a big loser. What do you got to do? You got to know who you're listening to, loved ones. You got to hear the voice of Christ. It is the voice because Jesus comes with a new voice. See, why is this so important? Because the word church in the, in the, in the New Testament, you'll see it. I believe it's for the first time in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says upon this confession, will I build my church? And that church, the idea is, the, the literal meaning is called out ones. It's a gathering of called out ones. Called out to what? Called out by the name of Christ. They hear his voice. John 10, 10 says that the sheep hear my voice. See, the early church didn't see itself as a volunteer community. It said we've heard the voice of Christ. He's got a calling, a destiny, a purpose for us. And we're going to live it out. We're going to be a gathering together unto him. Why is that important? Because see, if I volunteer, I take the initiative. And if it doesn't work out as I hoped, well, I just unvolunteer. I step out. I quit. But if I'm called, if I know Jesus has called me, and he's taken the initiative to call me, guess what? I respond by giving him my best. And then when everything doesn't go the way, I, 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 me, 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 want, want, want it to, I still understand there's a calling I have been called by the king of kings, the eternal creator of the cosmos. How do you see yourself this morning, friends? Are you a volunteer? What am I going to get out of this thing? I'm going to volunteer, so give me what I want. You come to Jesus on the base. Well, Jesus, you didn't provide this month. I think I'm going to bag this. Or do you come with a sense of calling? You know something, Lord? It's like the disciples said in John 6. The wonder bread stopped. The cold cuts ceased. People left. And there's a few guys. And Jesus turns and he goes, well, what are you guys going to do? And one of the few really smart things that Peter said during that season of discipleship. He said, Lord, 
Where else can we go but with you? You're the bread of life. You're it. See, that's a called person because you understand it's not about what you get. It's about who you get. It's about following Jesus. See, and this call is always a call to relationship, loved ones. The word disciple means a learner. It's like these first followers. We are called to follow Jesus. Not a church, not a program, but a person who offers us the ultimate in relationship. It is different for us since we can't physically follow Jesus around all day, but we're called to be with him, to learn of him, to follow his lead, to learn of his example so that we become that. Hear me. We celebrated this two weeks ago. Don't forget, Jesus is not a historical dead figure whose teachings we follow. He is the resurrected Lord and God who is a living person whose lead we follow, who has called us out. And we still have the ability through his word, through the spirit that lives in us, that we still get to hear the voice calling us out today, to now, tomorrow, to the preferable future and destiny that he has for us. So there's a calling, loved ones, and it's to follow me. And he says, listen, I want you to hear I chose you. And secondly, there's a purpose. He says, I will make you. See, Jesus promised to make them fishers of men, men who would fish for and catch people for God. See, Jesus is talking to fishermen, so this is what he does. He's such a great storyteller. He's such a great communicator. He uses their language and their imagery to speak to them. And he says, you know what? You guys have been catching fish but we're gonna ramp this up. We're gonna enlarge your vision. We're gonna give you greater purpose and you're gonna catch people for God. So as they followed Jesus, as they hung out with Jesus, he would transform them and he would begin to make them into something new. And hear me, loved ones, these are the words that you gotta hear. Jesus saying to every one of us in this room every day, I will make you. I will make you. I will make you make you. See, as they followed Jesus, as they hung out Jesus, he would transform them and make them into something new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And what does he do now? He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He's saying, what you have received from me, I want you to go out and give that to others around. See, Jesus changes us and he makes us new and different. We don't transform ourselves. We simply cooperate, Philippians 2, with what God wants to do in us. We're called to follow him and he promises to make us new and to change us. So many people approach God at this level. They feel like they've got to change themselves. They've got to be acceptable to God. Religion is self-improvement. Religion is self and image management. I've got to look good. Relationship is about Jesus who comes to say, I want to bring a transforming power to your life through the work of my spirit in you and your cooperative work and walking with me. Jesus is the one that says, come as you are. I'll change you. Religion says... 
I gotta change and then I can go. I talked to a guy recently, he says, you know, I think I'll come back to church as soon as I get it all together. I said, good luck. No, you know, I don't want the ceiling to fall in on you. Hasn't fallen in on anybody else yet. There's a few of you in here that I'm a little surprised, but that's, uh, especially me, uh, that, that's a whole other story. But see, that's what people think. Religion, I gotta get it together. No, Jesus is the one that gets it together. That's why, listen, don't, if you ever leave the church, don't ever tell me it's because there's a bunch of hypocrites here, okay? Because there are, and I'm the biggest. Now, that said, this is where hypocrites should come. Because if they're really pursuing Jesus, Jesus will begin to distill and extract all that hypocrisy out of them. See, we think that we gotta be, no, this is the place. This is the gathering, the called out gathering where Jesus begins to work, do his work in us. And I know that when we're talking about following Jesus, and there's probably a number of you that are still, you you really don't know where you stand with Jesus. And that's all right today. I honor that. Keep seeking. But sometimes we get this idea that we've got to be like somebody, don't we? I've got to be like Brian. I've got to be like Clem. I've got to be like Susie. I've got to be like Sally. I've got to look and talk like Jeff. Are you kidding me? When we study the disciples, and we will in a few, probably a couple months, we'll see a bigger uh, breakdown or a large enlargement of, of the disciples and their personalities. They were as diverse as any group of people. Uh, they were as diverse as any group of 12 could be. And that's important because the last, the, one of the things I love about Creekside is we don't have a culture where people look, talk, smell, think all the same. I don't think that there's many people at Creekside that if you walk downtown and met in three or four, in a group of three or four, they go, oh, they go to Creekside because of how they look or talk. It's kind of funny. We went to, out to eat the other night, and um, there was this little restaurant, and I mean, we're in there, and all of a sudden, three more Creeksiders come in and go hug them and say hi and greet them, and then a few minutes later, there's a couple more Creeksiders come in. We're going to break out and have a prayer meeting right there, take over the restaurant, and, uh, and, and the uh, hostess come over and said something about the church. And I go, oh, yeah, it's a great group of people. I, I couldn't really understand them, but he was talking about all these people from the church. And uh, it's, it's interesting. But listen, that's what a gathering does. That's what called out ones do. We just act like Jesus. We don't act like one another. I mean, if you look at the diversity in these guys, Peter was an activist. John was a mystic. Peter was impulsive. John was contemplative. Of the disciples, of the 12 disciples, seven were fishermen. You know what to be a fisherman? You've got to be patient. You've got to be persevering. Those qualities are valuable too when he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You've got to be patient with people. You've got to persevere with them through their stuff. It's interesting that Peter and Andrew were casting their nets into the sea when Jesus called them. Yet on the other hand, John and James, what were they doing? They were in the boats mending nets. You get a great picture here of, again, diversity. Why? Well, because you see that Peter and Andrew were heavily involved into evangelism, sharing their faith, going out and getting people. We see... In the New Testament, early on, Andrew, what is he always doing? He's always bringing somebody to Jesus. What's Peter doing? He's the guy that preaches the first sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And what happens? 3,000 people get saved. So these guys were the evangelists. What, James and John, what were they? They were totally different. They're mending nets. 
Now, they were fishermen, but it's interesting how Jesus makes this distinction here because what did they do? Well, they had a whole different perspective of ministry as you see them walk out in the New Testament through the book of Acts. They were the lovers. They were the ones that worked with people. They were the ones that encouraged. John was the one that had Peter after he had denied Jesus and probably was being marginalized by the rest of the disciples. John's the one that reaches out to him with kind of a pastoral heart and says, come and stay with me. And begins to love him, take care of him. See, loved ones, there's so much diversity when God calls us. See, the ministry of James and John was, 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 was that of mending people, and their emphasis was on heartfelt, practical nature of love. There's an interesting word here where it says mending. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, you can just make note of this. There's a scripture that's really for the church, and it says that God placed gifts in the body. It says he, played, he, he placed in the body as gifts, pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, evangelists. And he says their job is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. The job of, of pastors, teachers, prophets, evangelists, apostles is to equip the church you, us, to do the work of the ministry. We get that, don't we? We, we all are ministers. It isn't just a, the, the few of us that are, quote, on staff to do everything. Now, what's interesting, that word equip, it, it, it's the word cartetizen, and it's the word used for setting a broken limb or putting a joint back in place. That word where he says the, 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 the pastors, teachers, apostles are, are to equip the body, it's the same word there for mending nets. And we see that's exactly what James and John are doing. They're mending nets. You know what they're doing? They're getting that net ready to go back in for its purpose, which is to catch fish. And when you and I, when we hear the call of Jesus on our life, some of us will be out there and we'll be sharing our faith. There's a number of you, you're always telling about how you went at work or you were talking to somebody on the business and you shared your faith or you told them about Jesus or you told them about Creekside. That's an evangelist. And others of you just go, oh, you know, Pastor, I just had to call this friend at work today because, you know, they stayed home and I, I just wanted to minister to them. I wanted to pray for them. And you're mending people. And all of us have, out of our personality, Jesus uses us different. But every one of us is called to be part of this great commission of reaching people, of casting for people, of mending on people. That's the heart of Jesus, loved ones, that we would be casters for and menders of people. And Jesus changes us so that our lives become contagious, that it isn't all about us, you and me, but because he's working in us, we understand that as as we're being mended. See, I hope that when you come here on Sunday mornings, that when you gather in a growth group, that when we do an activity together like Easter or whatever, that there's mending of your life, that there are things that have been out of place that are spiritually being put back together because you're a called out one and you are with the gathering of called out ones. And Jesus, through his spirit, is healing you. He's touching you. He's ministering life to you. Why? Why? So you can go out 
cast nets. Put your hands on people. Help mend them spiritually. Touch them graciously. Love them wholly because that's what Jesus is doing in you, to you, through you. Because see, the scripture says that ultimately, you know what we're supposed to do? We are to bring the aroma of Christ to our community. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ. Through us, he spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are being perishing. We don't have any scents in our home, scent, smelling things in our home because of my severe asthma. But I remember Trina used to wear this lotion. It was a citrusy, lemony, sweet. It was just really nice. And it was interesting because whenever she'd wear it in the morning, if I gave her a hug and a kiss and said goodbye, that aroma would go with me through the day. And then somebody else might hug me or shake my hand and go, wow, what's that nice smell, PT? Ah, that's just the aroma of Trina. And see, loved ones, that's what's supposed to happen with us. That we are so following Jesus in tune and in touch with his love and his life that wherever we go, there's the aroma. Because when we're doing that, that's the healing element of our life. It's bringing Jesus to every situation. But as we see in this story, there has to be a response. What was their response? They left their boats, they left their nets, they left their families, their crews, and they followed Jesus. Now hear me, don't check out now. Because I know this is our, our Americano culture well, it ain't going to happen, bless God. It ain't going to happen for me. Well, probably not. And I want to give you some perspective very quickly because it's easy to leave it there and, and that becomes such a large generalization. Because you'll see in the next passage in Mark, Jesus visits Simon in Andrew's home and he heals Simon, uh, Simon's mother-in-law. Verses 29 and 30 say this. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon Peter. And Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. Excuse me. So here, hear this. Jesus says, follow me, and it says they leave everything immediately. Yes and no, because they still had a home. We see in the Gospels three years later that Simon still had his wife. We understand that, f- that three years later, all four of these guys returned to fishing again for a short season, which means they still owned their nets and their boats. I don't think it was this unilateral, irresponsible abandonment of their homes and families and business like they just said, oh, we're going to walk away, never to return. So don't think in those terms that there's a sudden irresponsibility that takes place in people's Christ followers' lives. And I see people that do that. Oh, I'm going to join the ministry. And they quit their work and they quit everything. And they say, I'm just going to follow you. No, no, no. Not yet. Think it through. But do it. But but don't be stupid. And, and sometimes when you read the Bible, it almost looks like, these guys are stupid. I could never do that. And, and, and so, you, you know what I'm saying? They all had it. But hear me. Hear me. 
When Jesus calls people, it will require a response. And it will usually involve leaving something behind. You see it throughout the Gospels. People slide up to Jesus. I just want to follow you, Lord. And he'd go, okay. Oh, by the way, you're a rich guy, aren't you? Go sell everything. And it says Jesus looked at him with love, and the guy looked at Jesus, put his head down, and walked away. That only happened one time in the Gospels where Jesus said that. One guy, one time. Why? Because Jesus will always finger something in your life that needs to be touched. And it won't be the same for everybody. But hear me, loved ones, there will be a call when you decide to follow Jesus where he will recalibrate something in your life. And you see here and throughout the New Testament, you see a priority of relationship. Luke 9, 59 through 62, Jesus comes to a man. He says, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go bury my my father. His father hadn't died yet. And and, And Jesus says, no, no. Follow me. Jesus is saying there's no higher priority than this relationship right here. There's also a, you see the priority of goods. You see it here where they had to leave their fishing business. Mark chapter 2, verse 14, we'll see in a few weeks. As Jesus walked along, he saw Levi or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Jesus said, follow me. Levi got up and followed him. This was a lucrative, lucrative job for this man. But he realized money couldn't do it for him, couldn't make him happy, couldn't bring him, couldn't fill the void in his life. You see here the father Zebedee, he has hired men. This indicates their business was doing well in the fishing business. They had a nice little tuna factory going. He had money. James and John left their father in nets. They left a bright future vocationally, financially. But you see, they found a higher calling that went beyond money. See, filet of soul failed greatly and compared to saving souls. Listen, they were hooked and their net worth skyrocketed when they chose to follow the one who could impact eternity, not only in their lives, but through their lives. And so Jesus begins to do this whole reorging in their life. For these men to follow Jesus, they would have had to leave their business behind. I mean, think about it. They couldn't be dragging their boats and their nets across Jerusalem. (laughs) Levi couldn't be. Matthew couldn't be taking his tax booth, you know, putting it behind a camel and dragging it through Jerusalem. No, they had to make some tough calls. They had to push some chips in. February 15th, 1519, Spanish explorer Hernan Cortes set sail for Mexico. He had an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, 553 soldiers. The indigenous population upon his arrival was 5 million. From a purely mathematical standpoint, it was about 7,500 to 1. The two previous expeditions that he had been on and led had failed to even establish a settlement in the New World. Yet Cortez conquered much of the South American continent. 
What Cortez is reported to have done on this third trip after landing is, is, is an epic tale of risk. He issued an order that turned his mission into an all-or-nothing proposition. Push the chips in, make the big bet. And he said, go burn the ships. And as his crew watched the fleet of ships burn and sink, they came to terms with the fact that, guess what? The retreat is not an option here. See, think about this. How often does failure come because we always have a plan B that we'll fall back on? Or that plan B, if our plan A with Jesus doesn't work or we're not happy with it, we go, forget it. I see so many people, they come and they go. You know why? Because Jesus didn't do what they expected or wanted. It gets too costly. It gets too difficult. Too many are unwilling to burn the ships in their faith and say, Jesus. See, we want God to do something new in our life, but we won't put any skin in the game. We want Jesus to do something new in our life, but we won't do anything differently. We just want to keep doing things the same. We want him to change our circumstances, but we don't want to change. I tell you, Americano Christianity has spiritualized the American dream. Watch TV and you'll see it. We have just enough Jesus to be informed, but not really enough to produce a new lifestyle. We don't have enough Jesus that really wants to transform us and to change us and to make us different. We want to receive everything Jesus has to offer but never really give anything up. We, 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 we'll count the cost. We just don't want to buy in. And my greatest concern is that the reason so many people fall away is because they quit pressing into and pursuing Jesus. Because in our culture, hear me, it's so easy to go to church and look good feel good, maybe even get inspired by an hour and 15 minutes here, but never encounter Jesus. We can follow rules. We can follow the, how people do it here, but we never personally engage and follow Jesus. And see, loved ones, that's what I love about this gospel what I love about Jesus. He is always going to be probing and pressing us. Follow me. And that's never easy. But I will tell you this. It's always the best. We talk about, I hear it all the time. Oh boy. We used to hear it all the time. Oh, I'm just going to sacrifice for Jesus. I'm going to go into the ministry. Are you kidding me? Big deal. You get to do this full time? You can't, that's a sacrifice? Oh, I got to serve on a Saturday, you know. Are you kidding me? Sacrifice? Tell me when does sacrifice ever mean sacrifice when you get more out of it than you give? We sang this song, didn't we? Jesus paid it all. 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Do you think for one minute you're going to stand in eternity before Jesus and go, well, man, you know, that was really a waste of my time. (laughs) You know what I would bet 99.9% of us are going to do? We're going to go, golly. We're going to see Jesus there with with his scars right there, right there, right here. And we're probably going to just for a moment or two cry and go, that's the sacrifice. I didn't sacrifice. So loved ones, what are you going to do? You going to follow him? Are you going to follow an Americano Christianity? Are you going to follow Jesus? Because it will cost you. You will reorg your priorities. But it won't be a sacrifice because it's for him, the one who gave his all for you. I'm going to pray, but before I do, I want you to think. Is there something you're holding on to? Is there a fear? Is there a voice? That today you need to say, I need to hear Jesus' voice that's holding you back, but you need to hear his voice to release you. There's some people here. It's possible God's calling you into ministry. There's probably some young people here that you've considered it. And you've heard the, oh boy, you can't make any money at it. It's, well, it's hard and it's all of that. Baloney. It doesn't matter what you get out of it. It's what we get to give to Jesus. And maybe you need to make a stand today to say, yep, I'm going to burn the ships. I'm going to pursue what Jesus has for me. I'm going to follow him. Or maybe there's somebody here today, you've never crossed the line and said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Today's your day. Now, there's no pressure here because I would say this to those of you who said, you know what, it's only my second day here, man. Don't pressure me. No pressure. But then I would challenge you to say, start doing your research. Start sniffing around. Start seeking. Start reading. Start reading the Gospels and see who this Jesus is. Yeah, I'll sing because you are-